everyone. I am very happy to present to you this new episode of Aurelius Podcast, where we talk with Tomer Sharon. He is a former Googler, author at Rosenfeld Media of the book Validating Product Ideas, and the current VP, Head of UX at WeWork. So we talked with Tomer about a lot of things that are very important to him and I know important to you as a listener, focusing on user research, customer feedback, key insights. So Tomer recently wrote a post on Medium called Democratizing UX, where he talks about a tool that he and WeWork developed to create, collect, and use key insights from user research. We talk about that tool, we talk about you what user research is, and we really focus on what a key insight is and how to create them. And more importantly, why user research reports or insights reports don't get that job done. I would encourage you to listen to the entire episode because Tomer is very nice enough to give you, our very brilliant listeners, a discount code for his book. So keep an ear out for that. And I can't wait to hear what you think about the episode. With that, let's get on to our show. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, Episode 12, with Tomer Sharon, VP and Head of UX at WeWork and author of Validating Product Ideas. Tomer, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to talk with you on our podcast, specifically because you know some of the work that you've been doing in user research and some of the stuff that you've been doing internally to help make user research more effective. So I think this is going to be a really interesting chat. I look forward to it. <laughs> awesome. Well, why don't we start off a little bit uh, and help the people. For those of you uh, listening who may not have heard of Tomer, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Um, all right. When I was five years... No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I've been... Uh, let's, go, let's go backwards. So I've been with WeWork in, uh, for uh, a year and a half now. Uh, when I joined to start a user experience uh, practice and, and group. Before that, I, uh, I worked at Google uh, here in New York for uh, seven years, mostly on uh, something nobody ever used, like, uh, what's the name of the thing? Google search. And, um, and I was mostly focusing on research there. And, um, and before that, I spent some time in Boston uh, studying, completing my master's degree at Bentley University. And, um, and before that, I was actually living in Israel, where I worked for a, a bunch of startups. So uh, that pretty much uh, gives you a short background. Yeah, so kind of, kind of all over the board. Actually sounds very similar to my background as well, everywhere from huge companies to startups. That's, that's a lot of fun, having the diversity mm -hmm. of that kind of background. Okay, so <clears throat> let's just jump right in. User research, you know, why yep. why is this important for those of us who may not be sold at this point? You know, what does user research really do for a company or a product? So I'll, I'll start from the opposite view. First of all, user research is not you know a lot of people think user research is where the sun is shining from. Uh, it's not. It's one consideration or one approach to. Uh, life or to developing products that can help. Um, I learned to know that there are other considerations, approaches, and things that are actually sometimes more important than user research. But uh, that said, I think user research is extremely helpful when a company is trying to answer three primary questions. Um, what do our uh, customers or potential customers need? What is it that they want? And once we have something, whatever that thing is, product, service, or whatever, or a prototype, um, can they use the thing? And, um, and user research is there to help answer with, with multiple methods and ways to, uh, to do it, to do it right, to do it wrong, um, different people who can do that, uh, whatever level of quality you choose to do it. Uh, it all comes down to these uh, three basic questions, in my opinion. Okay, I like that. So you you know you break it down again to summarize these 
answers to these three basic questions. What do our current or potential customers need? The second one would be, what do they want? Which is interesting Which is very to me. Different. Right. It's very different than what they need in many cases. Right. And then the third one is once we have something that we'd like to offer, does it work for them? Does it does it satisfy those wants or needs and can they use it? Yeah. Can they use it? Yeah. And uh, obviously, I didn't say that, but to me, it's obvious. Uh, the answers to all of these uh, questions don't come from just focusing, concentrating, and thinking really hard. It comes from um, actual work of learning from these people. Yeah, okay. So I wanna go back to those three questions because I, sure. I agree that there's something very interesting and distinct between you know what our customers need and what mm -hmm. our customers want. So talk a little bit mm -hmm. about the difference there and why they're both useful. Um, so I'll be very quick to say that what they want is, is not extremely useful for product design. It's extremely useful for um, communication around the product. So um, the reason is that we humans are, are uh, creatures that have no idea uh, what we need. <laughs> uh, we have no idea what's gonna happen in the future. And we have no idea what our behavior is gonna be like in the future. So therefore we're very, very bad at predicting uh, what we need, and uh, therefore, we're capable of answering the question of what we what we want. Even if you ask people what they need, they will they will tell you what they want. They don't know. I say they, but it's all of us. We don't know what we need. Um, and when when it comes to a need, a need is something that is uh, key to solving a certain problem. Um, or solving something you're not aware or meeting, I, I'm gonna use that word again, but meeting a need that, that you're not aware of. Um, maybe I'll give a couple of exa examples because yeah. otherwise it's too uh, wishy-washy. Uh, so um, so this thing, I'm waving my, uh, my iPhone. Uh, this thing is uh, w when Steve Jobs went on stage in I think January 2007 and, and showed it to the world expose the thing to the world. Uh, there was no one person outside of Apple probably that thought we need this. Uh, I don't know if people remember, but uh, a couple of months before, Nokia announced that it sold its one billionth uh, phone. So there was no problem that people were aware of. Um, during that time from when he went on stage in January until they started selling them, I think in July of 2007, um, Apple created that need. And then people, I don't know if, if people remember, but there was a bombardment of, of commercials, TV commercials on um, everywhere that showed you how to use the iPhone. And then they said, oh, okay, now I'm aware that I need this but it wasn't solving any problem that people were uh, aware of. Um, and as for problems, if you can't do something, then that's a, that's a problem for you. If you find that you are um, making all kinds of shortcuts and crazy things, um, then you have a problem. There's something that's missing. And most of what researchers or user researchers trying to do is help uh, understand that need less so about the wants. Wants, as Apple uh, showed us and con continues to show us, um, it's not really nice to say, but wants can be manipulated with, with good marketing and advertising. What I uh, don't want today, I may want tomorrow because of good advertising. Yeah, well, you know, I heard a quote recently just regarding that. It was kind of funny. It said, if you make it, then I want it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think that that's kind of the world of advertising, right? If, uh, if a company is, uh, you know, if people say that about a company, it's in a very good place. Yeah. And it, it's also a scary uh, and, and questionably ethical place, right? <laughs> so much for all of that. But I do, I am interested. So this is good. Um, it's also something that I uh, 
for whatever it's worth, completely agree with. I often tell people I, I'm not at all concerned with what people say they want. I'm concerned with what they yep. need. And I think it's interesting to ask, as you've called out, ask people what they want or at least what they think they want. How do you do that, especially in user research, to get then at what people need? All right. So first, I you know, if somebody asks me to do research that looks into what people want, I would try and persuade them that uh, either they shouldn't do it or that somebody else does it um, <laughs> because of what I said earlier, because it's not really helpful in product design. It's helpful in product communication or communication about the product. Um, that said, when, when I look into uh, what people need, then uh, since, again, we've established that people have no idea what they need, therefore, if you ask them, it's, you know, you've collected zero data. Um, there are m multiple ways um, you, you can go about that. Uh, I like to go by, you know, present problems or failures or, or present behavior of, of humans is a great predictor for future behavior. So I would look at current behavior related to what I'm interested in. Let's say I have an idea for a product. I'll use that example. So I haven't, maybe it exists already, but um, let's say that I have an idea for an app that you use, uh, that people who have no idea how to cook use, um, and they would like to take a photo of their, you know, inside of their fridge, and the app in return analyzes that and suggests a recipe for uh, for dinner, all right? Okay. So, uh, and I think that the problem that I'm solving is that people have no idea what to make um, with what they have. Um, so I would not go and ask people, oh, do you have a problem with, um, you know, recipes and, and the variety of what you eat and blah, blah, blah. Because of course they'll say uh, either yes or no, whatever, it doesn't count. What I would do is I would join these people. And uh, so there are multiple ways. This is one of them. Join these people and observe them. The, the method is called I don't know, field observation or field work or whatever people choose to call it these days. But the fact is that you are there observing what they do without even talking. You don't need to talk to them. You just get their permission to spend some time with them um, at home, <laughs> probably. And um, maybe outside of home, maybe when they go to the supermarket, everything that's related and relevant to cooking and, and choosing what to cook or what to eat. And then um, problems and needs will reveal themselves. Now, you get yourself confused in a good way, and you do that with m several people, not just with one. Um, and then you have an idea of patterns and things that um, that are relevant to solving that problem. And then you might find that, you know what, the problem is not that. The problem is actually that they don't know, you know, they don't understand the recipes or whatever. I'm just, uh, you know, thinking out loud here. But um, observing people and what they do is one great way to understand needs. Another way would be um, some kind of, uh, you know, some people call it uh, experience sampling or diary study or whatever. Each time they cook something, have them tell you about that. So write to you, it could be an email, text message or response to whatever, but tell you each time they do that, maybe based on a, a little template that you give them. Uh, and then you have a, a, you can do that with multiple people. It's more scalable than actually going to people's homes. So you can do that with dozens, hundreds, and maybe more people. And then you have uh, kind of a quantitative, quantitative analysis of how people cook or whatever, how they choose what to cook and so on and so forth. Um, key thing is uh, not to ask them what they think, but track their behavior. That's, uh, that's how you uh, uncover needs. Yeah, I love it. Not asking what they want, not asking what they think, just watching how these things happen, the behavior yeah. that exists today. So I think this brings us to a very natural question, which is to say, so how do we record this information? How do we keep track of what we learned and make use of it? A uh, big pain point for, uh, for many people. Um, 
So some people will say, uh, oh, we have our, you know, uh, we report that in, you know, I don't know, whatever, a spreadsheet, or we analyze that in a spreadsheet or in a tool, or uh, we write a report or something like that. Um, the challenge with that, with that is that you have answers to your questions uh, at the moment. But especially if you work in a, in a larger organization, uh, two years from now or three years from now, maybe after you leave the company, maybe after new people join the company, uh, it all evaporates <laughs> and uh, nobody learned anything. And sometime, sometimes researchers, you know, new researchers or very senile researchers would do the same study again if the question comes up for years after. Um, so to me, I learned along the years that reports are uh, extremely uh, not useful because they are not capturing, um, uh, they're not capturing what I call the atomic unit of what we learned. And they're not kept in a way that allows for good research memory of an organization rather than you know, as opposed to a bad research memory that's happening today. And also, and especially, I, I, I will say that again, especially when you uh, think about larger organizations, you know, not your typical startup with 10 people who do, you know, whatever it takes, but when you start to have departments and then sometimes multiple departments conduct research, sometimes they duplicate each other's efforts. So when you, when you arrive at these situations, then, um, you need to define a different way of creating an atomic unit of a research insight mm -hmm. and then uh, and then a different way for tracking it. And that's what we've been doing um, here at WeWork uh, in the past year or so. Yeah. So that's really interesting. I wanted to share something with you, too, that made yeah. me think of we actually had a quote from a direct customer of ours that mm -hmm. where they said it is faster and easier for me to do new research on the same topic than it is for me to read through past reports and the data to, to figure out what it is that we learned. Of course, of course. And so now this is even more interesting, especially uh, coming from you. You wrote a, a relatively popular post recently about this and something in ways that you guys are tackling this at yeah. WeWork. Yes, I mean, I had a, a rare chance to start things from scratch in terms of user research and user experience here at WeWork, and uh, and I took full advantage of that. And we built a system um, that's now being now being launched and and, and used uh, at WeWork. We call it Polaris. Um, I gave a title to that Medium post uh, that not a lot of people understood. I called it "Democratizing User Experience." Um, you know, if, if I don't know if you noticed, one of the comments I, I think is still there. Uh, I, I mean, I think it was a comment and not not a personal email that somebody sent me. Somebody wrote back, you know, why do you call it democratizing UX? It's just a research library or some archive or something like that. And my response to to that person was, "You're absolutely correct. It is, but I'm not thinking about the output, about what this is. I'm thinking about the outcome, and the outcome is that." by allowing people to, you know, find what they're interested among the different research insights that we collected, um, we democratize the user experience. We help them prioritize features or, you know, prioritize their projects and work. Uh, we allow them to get, get educated about things they already do. And uh, if by any chance there's a team that uh, is looking for a project, uh, not that too that it's most likely, but if there's a team that's looking for a project, Polaris is extremely helpful with identifying uh, problems to be solved or needs to be met by you know, new projects. So that's why uh, I call it democratizing the user experience. And, um, and that's exactly uh, you know, what's been happening here in the past, uh, well, couple of months since we launched it. We worked for a long time on, on gathering a lot of data we had an MVP that we used before we invested a lot in it. And now we have a system that, that's, that's working and we're very happy with it. We're adding to it, but uh, um, 
very, very happy with it. That's awesome. And so, and especially a company that is growing as quickly as WeWork is, that is the size yeah. of WeWork. I mean, essentially what I hear you saying is, hey, when we get user research insights and data in the hands of other people, our company gets better. Yes, definitely. Definitely. We've seen, we've seen multiple people use it in different ways, ways that we intended and ways we, we didn't think about. Uh, but yeah, I mean, going back to Steve Jobs, um, when he wanted, you know, he could do something like that. He could ask his people to bring all of Apple's products, put them on a table in front of him, allowing him to feel them, touch them, give them feedback and experience what users eventually experience. Uh, we can't do that. <laughs> our, our product is uh, buildings. Uh, some of them are nearby here in town, but most of them are not. Um, and it's not extremely scalable to go all over. We have, I, I don't know, I lost count, but maybe a, 150 buildings worldwide. Mm. Um, you don't know, you can't know what's going on in each and every point in time in those buildings. Yes, we control the design of the buildings. Yes, we control some of the software that people use, uh, that our members use. But we also have a really, really important component of our product, which is the human to human experience. We have our people in the buildings. We have our members in the buildings. They interact, things happen. We are not aware, we have no idea what's going on. Um, and it's not a matter of being, you know, uh, control freaks. It's just being aware of the experience, listen to our members more to be able to understand what's working well and what's not working so well so we can make it better. Absolutely. Well, and, and I think unquestionably that's something that every single company can get better at. And so, yes. you know, on the theme of that, there's a couple of things I wanted to revisit and ask you. The first one, you mentioned this atomic unit of yes. being able to share and, and allow people to act on. I'd like to unpack that a little bit and maybe yeah. you know, help the folks listening to the podcast what that is, what, what should that atomic unit contain? Yeah, so before, or in many other places, the atomic unit is a, of a research insight is a report. And a report, if you've done research, you know that when you go into a research study, you start with a set of, of research questions, and then life happens, and in the study itself, you learn, oh, so many more uh, insights and, and things. And then you have a dilemma. Do I give my stakeholders in the report what they asked for, the answers to the research questions, or do I give them that plus answers to questions they didn't ask? Um, whatever the case is, and even if you have some kind of a report archive, you're not always tagging or classifying the data based on the small chunks of learning that you accumulated. You have a report that the report was for X and that's it. When we thought about a more atomic unit of a, of a research insight, first we gave it a name, we called it a nugget. And, and, um, and the nugget to us has three components. First, an observation. This is the heart of the nugget. This is what, what is it that we learned, all right? And, um, and why what we learned here is important, okay? So that's one. Uh, the second component is evidence. There has to be evidence. Otherwise, it's your opinion against mine. So when I say evidence, evidence could be, let's say you interview the person for 30 minutes. Uh, evidence might be a video recording that caused you to write that observation. So it might be 15 seconds of the, you know, 15 seconds of the, of the interview or a minute or something like that. Uh, it could be an audio recording of the same size or so. Uh, it could be a photo, a screenshot, an email, anything that supports and proves that you learned what you what you said you learned. So that's that's component number two. And the last component is a set of tags. So actually, the first thing we did with this entire effort was create a a classified taxonomy of how we tag nuggets. Hmm. Um, so we have, you know, things with tags related to WeWork. So for example, you know, what type of membership, do you, WeWork membership do you, the person has, 
or um, where they are in the journey. We have our user journeys or um, I don't know what building you are and so on and so forth. But there are also kind of experience tags. These are, you know, is this thing that we learned, is this a good thing, a bad thing or a neutral thing for WeWork? Okay, there's a difference between good thing or bad thing for WeWork or for the member. Um, I'll give you an example. If a member says, I felt much better working from home, although I have a WeWork membership, I felt much better working for, from home for three weeks a month, every month. That's a good thing for the member, they feel good, but that's a bad thing for WeWork. So uh, we, we would classify that as a negative uh, insight. Um, and also, you know, tags about the magnitude and, and frequency and so on and so forth. Uh, probably the most important tag that we have is what we call a prop. A prop is, um, <laughs> I, I, would, I would probably call it a thing that is creating, that is a part of the WeWork product. That thing could be our app. It could be a desk. It could be a conference room or whatever it is. It could be even um, a community team a team member mm -hmm. who's also a part of our of our product. Not very nice to say, but they're also a part of our of our product. So, um, and we have probably I don't know hundreds of props. What that allows us to do after we create these nuggets and store them, we now have a database of you know at the moment I think. We, we just crossed, by the way, the 5,000 nugget uh, milestone, wow. which we which we uh, celebrated with a chicken chicken nugget meal for everyone, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as one would. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> obviously. Um, so once you have that database with so many nuggets, you can ask a question such as, you know, what do we know about how our members use video, or what do we know about uh, our coffee, feedback for our coffee in San Francisco, really meticulous about their coffee. So, you know, how is it, how is it working there? Uh, um, so, which we couldn't have. I mean, I was, I was working in several companies, some of them are big, and I remember every day you got an email from a researcher. What do we know about whoever done, you know, research about video? And then 10 people would answer. 10 people would not answer because they couldn't remember. And 10 people completely forgot that their report about, I don't know, whatever, Gmail, um, had something to do with video, but they didn't even write it in the report. So, um, so that allows us to keep our memory, kind of uh, research memory intact. And then we see people use uh, Polaris for all kinds of, of very interesting um, searches that drive product decisions. So this is uh, kind of a very long answer to your question about what's a nugget. <laughs> awesome. So this is actually a great place to point out that we recently built a tool and platform to do exactly this and build research nuggets and key insights using all of the data and notes that you already collect from user research and customer feedback. Aurelius version 2. We launched that in beta two weeks ago and we are sending invites for people to join beta for free and check us out and give us feedback so that we can improve and we can make our own key insights about how to do this better. You can do that and check us out on our website. Sign up right on our homepage www.aureliuslab.com and you can check us out and play around with this tool and make your own insights just like Tomer and I are discussing. But let's get back to our chat. No, that's all right. I mean, you know what? And I'll just summarize what the nugget is because the last part you just said, allowing it to drive product decisions, is very important to dig into. Yeah. But to summarize what a nugget is, um, the way I the way I talk about it, and the, certainly the way mm -hmm. we call it, even in Aurelius, is an insight, a key insight, right? Yeah. What that is comprised of for me, and what I think I hear you saying is, it's a statement of something we learned. Mm -hmm. And then there are supporting notes, artifacts, or as you call evidence that drove us to why 
we say we learn that, you know, so for what we learned is that, um, you know, most people don't find information on their mobile device, just as it again, as an example. And then here's these 10 notes that we took that back that up and a picture of somebody using <laughs> only their desktop or something else. Uh, right. That might be that might comprise a nugget for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you an even a, a physical example from WeWork. Um, let's say imaginary one, just uh, thinking out loud here. Let's say we interviewed a, a member and they told us or they showed us that they have no not they don't have enough storage. Um, you know, they, they don't have enough place to store their stuff. So that's what we learned. But then we can take photos and see, oh, they put, you know, there's a bunch of boxes here that really ugly in the middle of their office or something like that. Take a photo. That's the evidence. And then the tags would be what what I described earlier. So that's uh, that's how we do it here. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. And I want to hear a little bit more about how these nuggets or these insights are driving product decisions. How are people, you know, finding and applying this information? Um. So, as I mentioned earlier, we see three uh, primary uses of uh, Polaris. One is prioritizing work. So should I work on this or that? Two is education, educate teams about things that interest them. Uh, and then lastly, allocate. Again, if there's a team that has nothing to do, we can find stuff for them to do, uh, or they can find stuff for them to do in, in Polaris. I'll give you an example that I like to use. So let's say I am the general manager of WeWork in uh, Europe, and um, I do two searches in Polaris. One of them is, um bad coffee in amsterdam and the second one is bad tours in amsterdam tour just to explain to become uh, the, the most popular way of becoming a WeWork member is after a tour you schedule a tour in the building that you're interested in and we give you a tour and then you decide to sign up or not um, so bad coffee in amsterdam bad tours in amsterdam Let's say that the Polaris system um, produces, and by the way, the results of these searches are um, almost, you know, we call them playlists. They look like YouTube playlists and they play uh, both, uh, quote unquote, they play both uh, audio, video, photos, and so on and so forth. Um, you got two results for bad coffee in Amsterdam and 73 results for bad tours in Amsterdam. This is a very good indication for you as the general manager of WeWork in Europe to focus your teams on improving tours. That's just by the number of results that you got. And then you can dive into uh, the videos and, and, and so on and so forth and understand, okay, what exactly is the problem uh, with tours? And then you can say, oh, it seems that we're not telling them about that or we're telling them wrong things about that or, or whatever it is you have you know actionable things you can actually do based on uh what you saw what you learned the beautiful thing is that i have no idea that this happened <laughs> this is why i call it democratizing user experience in a way when you don't have that uh <laughs> the researchers i wrote in my post some people responded not so well to that uh, researchers are dictators <laughs> of, of research uh, they're the only ones allowed to do that. They're the only ones allowed to come to conclusions. And we are saying, no, um, this is uh, in their hands because they know what they're interested in. We just tag everything, kind of slice and dice everything in a way, in a way that, it, that we call, you know, nuggetizing it in a way that helps them then um, understand that and make those decisions. Or we saw people, other uses of that. We saw people and we love that when we see that uh, in the data. We see people in a certain building. And I specifically remember one building in Chicago where we saw over a, a period of a day, team members in that building watched all of the videos related to their building. Uh, so they were really interested in you know what they can do better in their building. So they didn't look for a prop. They were you know slicing the data based on their Mm -hmm. um, their building and try to, uh, to improve what they are responsible for. That's fantastic. And, and that would, that does nothing more than speak directly to how the power of research and those insights 
can directly influence product and service decisions. Correct. That's fantastic. Especially when, especially when you put it in the hands of people who need it. Right. But we need a way of doing that that is uh, more flexible and more impactful than a PowerPoint deck or you know some right. written report. So I, I, right. I agree with this. And I actually, I love uh, so much about what you've said. I want to go... And kind of you know wrap all this up and say this sounds awesome, and I think it it sounds particularly awesome for folks who um, maybe working in a company that already sees the value of research but can't you know might be struggling with applying it or or uh, streamlining how we do it and distribute it. Right? I could imagine somebody listening to the podcast and saying that's great, but I'm struggling even with helping my team or my organization find the value of consistently doing research. And I'm certain that you've had somebody say this to you before. So I'm kind of curious how yeah. you would respond to that. So first, my first, you know, my recommendation, if you listen to this podcast, you know, the best way to go would not be developing a Polaris as a first thing. Um, so you don't need the, you know, the full blown uh, great solution from the get go if people don't understand, you know, the basic value of research. Um, I always, always, always recommend to start really, really small and find something uh, that you can improve with research. I usually go to the most basic, you know, user research technique, which is usability testing, um, which is in, 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 a, in one sentence, it's a way to, I call it shake the product. Um, when you shake the product and actually, you know, have people ask people who are apparently or hopefully the users or potential users of that product use it for a, a few minutes or, or I don't know, 30 minutes. Um, you shake it. What do I mean by shake it? Um, the good things that are attached really well, they don't fall, they stick, and the bad things fall apart. Uh, and they make themselves uh, very, uh, very clear when you're just sitting back, shutting up, and watching what happens. Um, when you invite, uh, I call them stakeholders, whoever is involved in you know, decision-making related to that product, to that room or to watch that recording or whatever way you do that, it's extremely helpful for them and powerful for, for them to see what's going on, not hear it from you, but see what's going on in front of their eyes with, with features that they had a stake in deciding how they work or look or behave or whatever. Um, it's extremely powerful and, and, uh, and sometimes mind blowing for them. Uh, sometimes in a way that makes them want to change things after they see five minutes of one person using it. Uh, this is when you say, let's maybe that's the outlier. Let's, let's see a few more. Um, and then once you build trust, in, in you, if you're the researcher who's trying to prove that point, uh, or in the method, then you can take, you know, further steps and start these observations and interviewing and other methods that sometimes are more costly and so on and so forth. Yeah, for sure. A snowball effect, right? I mean, I think yeah. certainly my experience in doing this stuff and even, and even building designer product teams in the past is if they're not doing this, is simply start doing it. Right. Now, the interesting thing I want to call out here is a lot of times people say, I don't have permission to. And I often say, do you need permission? <laughs> do you ever, do you, honest, honest and truly, do you need to ask for permission? I, mean, I think that that's organizationally dependent, but most of the time, nobody's going to fire you for trying to learn more about your customers without permission. Right, right. So you might not have permission to uh, do usability testing. So just say that you're interviewing them. People, you know, sometimes usability testing sounds like, you know, a, a, a truck with uh, people in white robes and glasses wearing like that, half your nose. Uh, it's, it's, you know, make it, you know, simplify even how you call it. Oh, I'm just interviewing people for, I don't know, 15 minutes each. And during that interview, start, you know, showing them and asking them to use some things. You don't have to call it in, in frightening names. Exactly. And then that snowball effect, what I've found, again, personally in my past as well is once once you feed them that little bit of data all of a sudden the ask yep. becomes greater and greater and greater because mm -hmm. they realize how much uh that can help them in their work so yeah well I, I must say though we're all positive here 
this is crazy, crazy, crazy hard. And you'll, you'll mostly fail like a hundred times before it works. It's not easy. There are entire, uh, you know, university and college classes that you can take that just to deal with that or books that you can read just to deal with how to be able to do that first step. So just to uh, put it in perspective, it's probably the hardest part of research. Research is actually relatively easy compared to persuading people to do it or listen to it. I completely agree. And it actually is a good segue into another thing I wanted to ask you, which is, I believe it is very well understood and agreed upon that user research and making decisions based on the needs of our customers or users tends to make better products, services, and companies. Yet, I do not still see the majority of companies employing this at the level of which they should or perhaps at all. I'm curious to hear, first of all, if you agree with that statement or what you've seen, and then uh, two, why companies who are not working in this way, what is it that you think is preventing them? Why, why are they not adopting this philosophy or approach? First, I choose to be positive. More and more companies do that. Okay, fair enough. Um, uh, and it's true. I don't, I don't just say that. More and more companies are now um, open to these ideas. I think a big part of it is um, should go to IDEO that, that had uh, a lot of influence in creating what we call today design thinking, um, and also uh, the lean startup movement or approach, whatever you choose to call it, or cult. Um, that also opened the ears and eyes of many, many companies that was never listening before. I mean, I remember myself as a young UX person, you know, people like us would never get near a startup. And the joke was that, you know, they already know anything. How can we help them? Um, so, and that's changed. A lot, of, a lot of these companies are now changing. And now it's funny, but, you know, the lean startup is mostly popular in enterprises, not in startups, because enterprises want to be like startups. So I'm, I'm, I choose to be positive about that. <laughs> um, why it's not happening in other companies, I would say, I'm just, you know, completely imaginary scenario, but I'll, I'll just use it as, a, as an example to, to demonstrate what I mean. Imagine Google search, imagine the, you know, the person who is leading uh, R&D for Google search, all right? Uh, an engineer in, in software engineer in training, uh, an important person at Google. Um, so imagine that person that Google made a lot of effort to pick that person to lead that group and that product. Um, imagine uh, somebody telling that person, you know, what you think about what should be done in Google search is not really accurate. Uh, we have the crowds, the wisdom of the crowd. They know better. Uh, you don't, you know, we're, we're not saying that in these words, but that was implied from the insistence on, on doing research. A lot of people think that they have an idea of what people need and what people want and how people use things and so on and so forth. It's, uh, you need a lot of humility to, to be doing that well. And I think that is a, a skill or a characteristic that's being developed uh, as we speak in many, many uh, companies. It's not really companies, it's people. So a lot of people grow to understand that um, it doesn't say anything about them, that they choose to uh, to learn from their audience. Um, you know, it doesn't say that, that they don't know what they're doing. It says that they know who to learn from, that's it. Yeah, you know, I think that's a very fair and somewhat democratic response uh, to the question uh, playing on, you know, the title of your, your most recent blog post. Yeah. But also, it's interesting that you say, you know, it's it's people, not organizations. But yet, you know, worth calling out, organizations are made up of people. And so, you know, we, we have to find it in ourselves to to help influence that one on one. And even within I, ourselves. I say that because I say that because, you know, people, people use these words and they say, you know, my company decided, you know, a company does not decide, somebody decided. So yes. um, pinpoint that person and, and see how, how you can help 
them learn about users or learn from users. Yes. And, uh, you know, something I would offer uh, as an example there is what I've often helped tell people is, you know, there's a lot that you probably already know in, in reality of it. So I mean, even using the example that you of that person, perhaps at Google, right? I can assume very smart, talented person likely has a lot of the answers. What I've often talked with these folks about is, uh, yep, there's a lot of things that you know. I want to help you be as absolutely certain as you can. So there's there's a lot of things you're certain of, and there's probably some things that you're uncertain of, and there's probably some things you didn't know you're uncertain of. I want to help you get as close to 100% confidence as possible. A lot of times that helps. Sometimes it doesn't. When it doesn't, well, we use other ways. It's funny. I, uh, I used to mentor a lot of startups, and I uh, they thought I was joking, but I was not. When I When I always asked them, you know, what is the thing about your product that you're mostly confident about? And then they would say something and say, okay, let's research that. <laughs> and in many cases, you learn that, you know, their belief is not accurate. It's mm-hmm. not true. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's almost too easy sometimes to go for things they don't know because they would not argue. Um, but in many cases, what they're sure of is what's not true. Right. Let's just crystallize that confidence. Yeah, right. That's usually yeah. the way that I pitch it is just say, that's the thing you're most sure of. Let's just, let's just make sure that you're 100% confident there so yeah. we can get that out yeah. of the way. Right? Let's, just, yeah. let's just do it and get it out of the way. Um, when in reality, as you've pointed out, that's the place perhaps we learn the most. Yeah. You know what? One more thing related to that. Um, people sometimes respond to uh, research results saying, oh, we already knew that. So the thing is with, with that kind of response, and I don't always you know, you know, answer back, but um, when people say that, what that means is that they didn't know that. They had a feeling that this was the case, and now if you did proper research, now they can be confident about that. Um, so that's a kind of a minor distinction, but it's really, really important to um, have these conversations with your stakeholders beforehand to understand what is it that they know? How do they know that? How, how, ask them a bunch of questions and then ask them, how do you know that all the questions, the answers to those questions are, are that? Yeah. Um, what did you do? And you don't have to criticize, oh, that's not you know, a scientific way. Whatever the answer is, you will tackle that during research and show, okay, here's you know, proper data collection and data analysis to show that the answer is X, whatever. Um, yeah. No, I agree. I think that that's very impactful. And even just cutting kind of straight down the middle to say, you have confidence in this or you believe this is something you already knew. Are you willing to act on that? If the answer is no, then they actually don't have the confidence, right? I mean, one of the things I had a conversation with a team recently where I talked about this. Uh, because we were talking about like how it was difficult to get you know people on board with doing research or, or working in this way or making these kind of informed decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Is how I usually refer to it. And what I said is everybody you're dealing with, every single one of them are human beings. Now we are infinitely complex and deceptively simple at the same time, right? And why I say deceptively simple is uh, as somebody who is a stakeholder, right? Or a business owner of a product, as an example, uh, they have fears. They might be the most confident person in the world, but they have fears, fear of loss, fear you know, of risk. If they are not willing to act on something yet they believe they know, there's a fear there. There's a risk there. Yeah. We want to be risk averse and we can actually use research to help them understand we can make you look like a hero. You can be certain right. you should act on this because if you haven't already, you don't have the confidence, right? I completely agree with that. Awesome. So Tomer, I know we're coming up on the end of the time here, and this has been a really fascinating chat, and I think we covered quite a bit of ground specific around how we use research in the design process and, and help companies be better. Uh, I'm curious, is there anything that you would like to share with folks uh, listening to the podcast today? Um, if research is, uh, is new to you, if you want to learn more about how to do that, um, I would say there's a really good book that I wrote. Uh, the last one. I'm not writing any more books. It was very painful. Uh, it's called 
It's called uh, validating product ideas through lean user research. Um, what I did there is I interviewed 200 plus product managers and startup founders, and I asked them, how do you learn about your audience or potential audience? Um, and then what questions do you ask yourselves about your audience? And they answered and I collected hundreds of questions. And then together with them, we grouped these questions into eight distinctive groups. I summarized each group into one question that they need an answer to from their audience and uh, turned each question into a chapter in the book that guides you step-by-step -step on how to answer that with user research. Um, and um, and I'm, I'm also happy to, uh, for the podcast listeners, to give a, a discount of 20%, I think, um, with free shipping in the US and Europe. Um, if you use the code TOMER, T-O-M-E-R, news, N-E-W-S, uh, but you have to buy that from my publisher's website, uh, and that's www.rosenfeldmedia.com. Uh, so again, code is Tomer News, 20% discount, free shipping US and Europe, and uh, or I think North America and Europe, actually. And uh, the website is rosenfeldmedia.com. Uh, I think that's it. Well, that's fantastic, and that's a very generous offer. So we'll make sure to also have links to those things in the show notes cool. on the podcast episode. And I think that that ought to do it. We want to be respectful of your time, Tomer. You're definitely a busy guy, and I'm sure you have some more uh, uh, understanding to do to help WeWork oh, yeah. improve their products and services. So, all right, everybody. Uh, Tomer Sharon, VP and Head of UX at WeWork, thank you so much for being a guest of ours today. Thank you, Zach. It was fun. All right, everybody, we will see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. And also, you can fill out our podcast survey where you can let us know if someone awesome that we should have on the show and even tell us about the things you would want to hear about, topics that are interesting for you. You can check that out in the show notes or on our website. Thanks for listening to Aurelius Podcast, talking about product strategy and design strategy. We are the first platform of its kind to help you solve the right problems for your customers and your business and build products and services that truly matter. You can check us out at AureliusLab.com. That is www.aureliuslab.com. You can check us out on Twitter at AureliusLab and Instagram. Aurelius Lab. We'll see you next time.